0: recognizing and appreciating 16 great years of leadership. 16 years ago, Bill Minchin joined our Grace Fellowship staff. And because of his tremendous gifting in many areas, because of his wisdom and his spiritual depth, he quickly became one of our key staff leaders and and one of the most important strategic leaders and a right hand really to me for all of these years. His current role is as pastor of business administration and when Bill came on board, he uh, pretty quickly kind of revamped our whole business office and put in place procedures and practices that still serve us well today. Now, through the years, Bill has done so many things, I can't possibly mention them all here, but let me just highlight a few He, for years, he's a gifted teacher, and for years taught the uh, 301 class we call Discovering Your Design for Ministry. What that means is, by God's grace, Bill has helped hundreds and hundreds of people uh, help get plugged in to the place where God would want them to serve. Uh, Bill has had many mentoring relationships with younger leaders. He has led small groups and taught Bible classes. Uh, for a number of years, he served as my executive pastor, meaning that he was my only report, and all of our staff at Grace reported to Bill. Are you getting a picture here of a pretty amazing individual? That's that's who Bill Mention is. One of the things he's done most recently is architect our Grace in Action ministry that hundreds of you served through as we partner with local agencies to help homeless, hurting, hungry, and desperate people all across the capital region. When we went multi-site back in 2008, well, guess what? Bill was at the forefront of that effort, and he has led virtually every building and renovation effort that we've had uh, since that time. Well, Bill let us know over three years ago that he would be retiring And so we've had this time for over three years now to help prepare for that, to train leaders and and get everything ready for this important uh, transition. And thankfully, Bill and Elisa are going to continue in membership at Grace and ministry here as they will continue to lead the Grace in Action ministry, and Bill will also be our project manager for a number of building projects that that are upcoming. So... I've asked Bill to join me on the platform at all three services this weekend, just to share a little bit. So, could I ask you now, would you give a warm Grace Fellowship welcome to Bill Minchin as he comes and joins me on the platform? Thank you. Oh, Great to see you, Bill. Well, for 16 years now, you have served at Grace. Uh, I'd, I'd like for you to share, if you will, how do you feel about your upcoming retirement. Come right on over here so everybody can see you better. There you go.
1: Well, first off, Rex, let me say thank you for those very kind words. Uh, You know, in a lot of ways, uh, this is one of those moments that feels a bit surreal. But my short answer to your question is, I'm feeling an immense amount of gratitude and a good bit of expectation about the next phase. As you mentioned, 16 years ago, God opened the door for me to make a major career change to do ministry full-time as part of the staff at Grace Fellowship. In so many ways, it was literally a dream come true. And to say that it was filled with highlights and meaningful experiences would be such an understatement. I mean, how many engineers get the opportunity to perform the wedding for their very own mother, as well as dozens and dozens of other wonderful couples here at Grace? But as I have reflected, Rex, the thing that has risen to the top consistently are the people of this church. It's the quality of the people that have made the biggest difference in my experience. So I want to take this opportunity to publicly kind of say as big a thank you as I know how. First to you, someone who was not just my boss, and you were, (laughs) and a good one by the way, (laughs) and the senior leader of this organization, but a friend and a mentor. And then to our elders and staff, Just a great group of people that are highly committed to providing direction and leadership for this church. And then to the Congregation of Grace. It has been such a joy to serve together and to grow together and to learn together. It has really been awesome, Rex. And I'm looking forward to a good bit of that continuing into this next phase. Who could have imagined that God would allow us, us, the opportunity to develop and launch three brand new campuses right here in the Capital District. And these are campuses that God is using to advance his kingdom. So as Lisa and I anticipate this next phase, which we uh, expect will involve a good bit of ministry and and even some work, uh, our hearts are truly filled with gratitude, gratitude to God, and gratitude to the people of Grace Fellowship Church.
0: Oh, Bill, that is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Now, the Bible says, uh, folks, that we ought to give honor to whom honor is due. And we're so grateful for uh, not only the legacy that Bill and Elisa mentioned have already left at Grace, but but all that God's going to continue to do through them. Would you join me, Grace Fellowship, whatever campus you're at, would you join me in showing appreciation, and thanks to God for the leadership of this godly leader. Would you do it? Amen. We honor you, Bill Minchin. We honor you. God has used you in a huge way, brother. And we thank you so much for that. God bless you. Amen. I want you all to know that um, we will be also, thank you, Al, we will also be uh, having a little reception in the lobby of Latham after the 11 a.m. service. So whatever your campus, uh, we would love for you to come by after the 11 a.m. service at Latham and just join us in the lobby. You'll have a chance to share words of appreciation uh, with Bill or just to say hello, okay? So there'll be refreshments provided It'll be a time to relax and just have some good conversation. I hope to see you there. Several years ago, a man named Mark Middleberg popularized a phrase, a little formula, actually, that I'm rather fond of. I think it's excellent. And it goes something like this. Now, the idea behind it is thousands of years old, but the phrase itself is rather new. High potency plus close proximity plus clear communication equals maximum impact. High potency plus close proximity plus clear communication equals maximum impact. Now, let's unpack that briefly. High potency. If Christians really live a distinctive life, if god's grace is evident if they represent jesus well because he's truly changing them from the inside out and and if they actually have relationships with unbelievers that's close proximity the salt shaker has to get the salt has to get out of the salt shaker and into the world to do any good so if we have high potency and we really have close proximity and then when the right opportunities come As the Holy Spirit leads the way, we clearly communicate the gospel. Middleburg says there's going to be maximum impact, and I believe that is absolutely right. Now, granted, not everyone's going to embrace the gospel. Jesus said that it would be a narrow road. Jesus said that the way to destruction would be much broader, and many would go down that road. And... Our Lord also reminded us that there are some people who will just despise the cross because they love darkness rather than light. But our problem in our world is that so many Christians don't really represent Jesus well. They don't make Christianity attractive. They're negative and even hostile toward unbelievers. They're crotchety and hard to get along with, and frankly... It doesn't really help the cause of Christ. Mark Twain once joked that it was heaven for climate, but hell for company. Obviously, he didn't like to be around Christians very much. But Jesus said just the opposite should be true. Jesus said you're the the salt of the earth. Salt adds flavor. It makes food come alive. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Light penetrates the darkness. Paul writes in Titus that we should strive in every way to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So as we wrap up this series on Bold Living in Turbulent Times, I want to talk to you today about what is at the very core of our mission. There is perhaps no more relevant conversation about who we are and what we're about as a church than what we're talking about in this message today. I want to talk to you about how we can, by God's grace, make Christianity a bit more contagious. How we can represent Jesus so well that he becomes more winsome, as it were, in the lives of people. So I want to highlight four words for you. If you're taking notes, you might want to follow along and jot some of these down. The first word would be transparency. Transparency is important. We should be transparent about who we are and whose we are. So let's pick it up as we work verse by verse here. Let's start with verse 11. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope that it's also plain to your conscience. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means that real believers have this awesome respect for the sovereign power of God. He set this world into motion. He's not only our creator, but through Christ, he is our redeemer. And he has communicated clearly to us that the stakes are very high when it comes to the gospel. He said to us that when this life here is over, it doesn't all end. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And that realization, that message, that knowledge causes us to persuade people. It becomes a major focus of our life to to try to share with people this awesome and very important news. Now, to persuade doesn't mean to force it down someone's throat. It means to make it so attractive, so winsome, so logical that it becomes rather irresistible. Now, there's two reasons why we persuade. One is because Jesus told us to. That's a good enough reason, right there. He said, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And so he said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. The word there is ethne, all the different ethnic groups of the world, wherever they are. But the second reason that we try to persuade people to follow Christ and share this good news is because it's just human nature to share something that's good news that you really believe in. A few months ago, I had a cough. I I just couldn't get rid of. It was annoying me. And it it was with me all the time. And when I would preach, I I would have this little cough going on. And it, it was just so, so distracting. And I mentioned it one weekend in a sermon. I kid you not that after that sermon where I mentioned the cough, out in the lobby, 12 people came up to me all different times to offer some advice and some remedy for the cough. One person walked up and said, I tell you what, I had a cough like that once. What you need to do, Pastor, is you need to take a little honey and a little lemon and just a touch of cinnamon and then get some good Tennessee whiskey and put it in there, and it'll work wonders. I said, wow, really? It looks like you've tried it, Yeah. And then another person said, you know what? I think it has to do with your heart. Have you checked your blood pressure lately? I said, yeah, actually I have. It's pretty good, thankfully. I said, well, that's a good thing because I really believe it's somehow connected to your heart. Another person walked up and said, well, you know what? I had a cough like that once and I just couldn't get rid of it. And I eliminated gluten from my diet and the cough went away. 12 different people and I appreciated all of them because they were all trying to help and I am grateful but you know I thought after that isn't it amazing how that people come out of the woodwork to passionately share a remedy to even a minor ailment now think about it brothers and sisters The Bible says that we, as humans, have been afflicted with something far greater than a minor ailment. We're afflicted by sin, and it has separated us from Almighty God. We have got a big problem. But Scripture says that God addressed that problem through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as he died so that our sins could be forgiven. And he rose again, vindicating everything he had ever said, and he offers to us now forgiveness of sins. He says, I'll come and forgive all your sins. I'll adopt you into my family. I'll literally come in you by my spirit and begin to change you from the inside out. That is awesome good news. And we want to share that. In Acts chapter 26, Paul stood before a man named King Agrippa. He was on trial. And Paul shared his story, as he seems to always do in Acts. And he told King Agrippa how that he really didn't believe in this Christ for so long until he met the living, risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And that began to change everything. And then he turned and looked right at King Agrippa, and he said, King I know that you're aware of the, all these things because these things haven't been done in secret. King Agrippa, I know that you believe the prophets. And King Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, do you expect me in such a short time to become a Christian? And do you remember what Paul said there back to King Agrippa? Do you? Do you remember? He said, oh, no, I'm not trying to persuade you of anything. Your religion is good enough for you. In fact, I believe that whatever a person believes, as long as they're sincere, it's totally fine. Do You remember that? You remember what Paul said back to King Agrippa? He said, well, King, whatever floats your boat, buddy. You know, we live in a pluralistic world and there's all kinds of beliefs out there and so whatever gets you through the night, man, I'm good with that. That's where I'm coming from. No, no, no. Paul didn't say any of those things. He looked King Agrippa in the eye and he said, O king, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but everyone listening to me in this court today would become like I am except for these chains. Is that the kind of transparency and clear message that you have? Do you have that kind of transparent passion to lead people to Jesus Christ? The second word I want to talk about from this passage, though, is intensity. There's transparency and then intensity. If we want to make Christianity contagious, we must be intense in our effort to represent the truth. Let's read on here in verse 13. If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind it is for you for christ love compels us in a new american center says it controls us the idea there being it's the guiding force behind our action because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died if we want to represent christ well make christianity contagious we must be enthusiastically intense about this message. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed, every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. Have you ever noticed it? Enthusiasm is truly contagious. Now that doesn't mean that you have to have a raw, raw type of personality. But people need to sense in you that you really believe this and that it's important that it is an intense message bubbling up from deep in your soul. Arnold Toynbee wrote, apathy, and our world right now is plagued by apathy. Apathy can only be overcome by enthusiasm, and enthusiasm can only be aroused by an ideal which takes the imagination by storm." Enthusiasm is a great word. Its etymology is that it comes from two words in Greek. Entheos is the etymology. In God, dwelling in God. And you can't be in God without being enthusiastic. Mike Lawrence is a pastor friend of mine from Massachusetts. Mike's been at a wonderful church there in the Hopkinton area a church that's been growing, it is healthy and vibrant. But Mike shared several months ago how that he and some of his key leaders did a huge study of effective churches around the country. And what they did for two years' time, they went to, I think it was a dozen very effective churches that were seeing large numbers of people come to Christ. They wanted to try to figure out what are some of the common denominators, the dynamics of these churches that God is really using. And as Mike Lawrence reported on that, he summed up their conclusions of this massive study like this. There are many differences in these dynamic churches, but the one thing that marked them all, the one thing that marked them all was an intense enthusiasm for the gospel. And that intensity was contagious. Let me ask you, are you a contagious Christian? Jesus said, lukewarm Christians make him sick. That's what he said. God wants to see passion and intensity in us. He wants to see a natural enthusiasm, not something that's faked or contrived. Not where you look in the mirror and say, I'm going to put on a smile today. I'm going to be enthusiastic. No, it bubbles up from inside. Is that the kind of zeal and enthusiasm you have for Christ? Paul was so intense that Governor Festus thought he had lost his mind. He said, Paul, your great learning has made you insane. Paul said, oh, Festus, I'm not insane. I'm just saying what is true and reasonable. Back before 9-11, there were some CIA agents who had begun to talk about the threat of possible terrorist activity and they began to name some names. They began to talk about, hey, here's a scenario that could develop. A number of agents did this before 9-11. You know how they were received? People thought they were crazy, thought they were being overly dramatic. They were called obnoxious and even insane, living in fantasy land. But after 9-11... We realized they weren't so insane after all. And that actually they were being very reasonable in their statements. And we realized that we should have paid a lot more intensity or interest to what they were saying. And they themselves should have been more intense. Intense Christians may appear to be out of their mind to some people. But if this message is true, folks, if there really is a danger... Of hell, if there really is a reward of heaven, then we need to be more intense than ever. We need to actually escalate the intensity of our ministry in days like this. Let's say that you're eating at a restaurant with your family and uh, you're having a great time and it's just a good family time together, but as you're returning from the restroom, you just happen to glance into the kitchen of the restaurant. And you notice in there several workers that are frantically trying to put out a fire, but unsuccessful. The fire is out of control, and it looks like it's about to move out of the kitchen into the restaurant. What would you do? I think you'd be intense. Oh, I think you'd go back to your family and immediately begin to usher them out of the restaurant. I think you'd yell, fire, fire, everybody get out. Now, some people wouldn't want to hear that. They're having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. This is interrupting their evening. They might even call you obnoxious and an idiot. But if that message is true, you wouldn't be obnoxious. You would be doing the most responsible, loving thing you could possibly do. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I believe you would not do. If you saw that fire raging out of control and all these people in danger i think you would not what you would not do is come back and with a sort of sort of nonchalant attitude go hey everybody hey it is such a beautiful day outside hey why don't we here's an idea why don't we all just grab our plates and let's just go out and eat on the lawn for the next few minutes you wouldn't do that. You would be so intense that I believe you would be able to convince everybody to get out of that place quickly. Now the analogy of the fire that I use doesn't hold true with the gospel in two important respects. First, there's probably more time to make a decision than just a few seconds. Most people who hear the message are going to have many months or even many years before they face the judgment of God. And second, you're not the first to warn them, are you? In most cases, people have heard the warnings over and over again, and they've ignored them. They've even become now indignant and cynical about the warnings. And that's why people, by the way, who stand on street corners with sandwich board signs yelling, repent or perish, honestly, usually don't do a lot of good. People just brush it off. So, in light of those realities, what should we do? We have to be more gentle. We have to be more tactful. We have to be more patient and more involved in people's lives, but we should still have an intensity about us that is contagious. So let me ask you, before we quickly move on, what is your enthusiasm quotient? What is your intensity quotient when it comes to the gospel? Do you ever weep? over people who are far from God. Jesus wept over the rebellious spirit of Jerusalem. Paul said that he warned the people in Ephesus with tears. He said remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Transparency, intensity. But as we make the picture more complete here about what we really need, according to this passage, to kind of help make Christianity more contagious in our world, I think we need to add the word perceptivity. Perceptivity. In other words, we can make Christianity contagious when we're perceptive about the God-given, God-given potential in people. Let's read on. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We need to see people the way God sees them, not the way the world does. The world looks at the externals. Can I be honest with you today? Wherever you're worshiping, whatever campus, can I tell you something? If you're rich, if you're good looking, if you're young and healthy, the world sees you as having value. If you're not, they don't grant much value to you, they kind of brush you off. The world looks at the externals and kind of assigns value based on what they see. God looks at the heart. The world sees possessions. We should see potential. That's one of the things that was so wonderful about Jesus. Imagine looking at a vacillating character like Simon Peter and seeing that one day he could be a solid rock-like character. Imagine looking at a scoundrel like Zacchaeus and seeing the potential in him and Zacchaeus actually inviting Jesus over. For dinner. Imagine Jesus looking at a demon-possessed Mary Magdalene and seeing the potential in her, and she becomes the first to actually see the risen Christ. Jesus looked at the persecutor Saul and saw that he could become the preacher Paul. And When the Lord looks at any person today, he sees not the externals. Listen. He sees your heart. I want you to know that today, especially if maybe you're checking this out and wondering, how does God feel about me? Can I tell you how he feels? He looks straight into your heart, and he sees what he designed you to be. That's what he sees today, not what you are, not what you have. He sees what you can become by his grace, and he loves you just as you are. John's Gospel tells us about Jesus meeting a woman at the well in Sychar. This woman's life was a bit of a wreck. She'd been married five times, had five broken marriages. She was now living to a guy she wasn't married to. Her life was probably, in many ways, the talk of the town. But Jesus broke down cultural barriers. He loved her just as she was and just the way he loves each of us today. And he reached out and he asked her for a drink of water. And he struck up a conversation. And she was so moved by that encounter as she came to believe, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. She ran into the town and she brought the whole town out. She said, come Come see this amazing man. He must be the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done. He saw right into my heart. Isn't that amazing? Those townspeople saw a despondent, desperate, somewhat decadent woman. Jesus saw a powerful evangelist for the gospel. So my question to you is, how do you see the people that you associate with regularly? And I ask that because how you see them is going to really make a big difference in whether or not God uses you to help reach them and move them. Maybe one or two steps closer to Christ, but you've got to see them the way God sees them. God loves them just the way they are, just the way he loves you and me. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but each week at Grace Fellowship, at our different locations, we have worshiping God with fully committed hearts, people who are former agnostics and atheists, every week. Every week at Grace Fellowship, we have people passionately worshiping God who used to not pay their bills, who used to live debaucherous lives, who looked for every opportunity they could to diss God in some way. But one day, somebody saw them with the eyes of love and what they could become, and they invited them to church, or they shared the gospel with them, and God began to change their lives. Are you that perceptive? Do you see the people in your family, the people beside you at work, the people in your school, your classroom, your neighbors, your friends? Do you see them the way God sees them? That is critical if God's going to use us to help move them to Christ. Well, the final word I want to share is the word ministry. We've talked about transparency, intensity, perceptivity, and I want to end with this word, ministry. We've got to understand that the ministry we have, and all of us are in the ministry, it's not just the Bill Mentions and the Rex Keeners and the staff people and the small group leaders. All of us are in the ministry if we're following Jesus. When you got saved, you got ordained a ministry, friend. Let me tell you, he's got a ministry for you. But do we understand how precious that ministry is? Verse 18 reads, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry. Did you catch that? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has called us to be his agents in this world to help reconcile people back to him. You say, why do they need to be reconciled? Because sin has broken and damaged and marred that relationship. And yet through Christ, it can be mended again. That God was reconciling himself, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Let's say that you've got some friends who are in deep financial trouble. They've made some bad choices and they know it. And and they're repentant about it and they want to change but they just can't seem to find their way out They're, they're $50,000 in debt and they just can't pay it. But let's say that you've got a wealthy friend who comes along and he says, look, I wanna help. And to, to your amazement, he, he says, I'm gonna write out a $100,000 check here. 50,000 of this is to pay off all their debt, to pay all their bills. And the other 50000 is for them to put in the bank, in their checking account, to help them move into a better future. And all I ask of you, friend, as he writes out the check, I want you to just deliver this to your friends. How would you feel about delivering that check? <laughs> Man, I could not wait to deliver that check. I'd want to see the look on their face. I'd want to see the joy. I'd want to see the ecstasy of receiving that unspeakable gift. I would want to get that to them as soon as possible. Can I tell you something? People are under a huge debt of sin that they can never pay back. And Satan Satan, is eager to collect what is due him, death. But through the cross... God has offered to pay the debt in full. And what's more, what's more, not just forgive the sin, but he's offered to put more on our account, to actually impute the righteousness of Christ to us that we don't deserve. And friends, we get to deliver that good news. That's not just an obligation. I want you to know that that is an unspeakable privilege. But we must communicate it clearly. And when we understand the preciousness of that ministry God has called us to, I believe that as we deliver that compassionately and gently and patiently and winsomely to people, I believe that God is going to change lives. Verse 15 reads, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I don't know where God is going to call you to be his ambassador and make Christianity contagious, but I do know this. High potency plus close proximity plus clear communication equals maximum impact. And that impact has never been more needed than in turbulent times like these, where it seems the very foundations are being shaken. Father, thank you for calling us to a ministry of reconciliation. We revel in it. We see that it's not just an obligation, it is a profound privilege. We're so grateful. Thank you that we can represent you in this world, And be a part of this awesome ministry of seeing people reconciled back to a holy God who loves them dearly. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to have such high potency, such close proximity, such clear communication. I pray that you'd help us to have such transparency and appropriate intensity and such insightful perceptivity into people's God-given potential that we would... We would actually execute this ministry so effectively that you would win thousands and thousands in this region to yourself. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.